result of sin in general traced back to the fall of mankind, specific sin can be traced to individual choices. But if you are born into this world with some kind of defect, some kind of a disability, it isn't because of something you have done or something that your parents have done. It's just the result of the curse of the fall. The curse of the fall introduces death and suffering into our experience. And so while the Jews held that it was possible to be born with sin and thereby bringing about some kind of a physical defect or disability in your life, Jesus dispels that and says that this man's blindness, even though it is the result of sin in general, will result in the glory of God because God is going to intervene and he is going to heal this man from his blindness. So as Jesus encounters this man somewhere outside the temple, Shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles, he spits into the ground, makes a little mud pack, and anoints the man's eyes, instructs him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash. And if he were to do that, then he would be healed. And sure enough, that's exactly what takes place. So we're going to look at this very lengthy dialogue that is dominated by the Pharisees as a result of this healing. So we're going to look at it as a continuation of last week's message the responses now that are going to come as a result of this man who was born blind being healed by Jesus. We're going to look at this in three different sections because it's such a lengthy dialogue. We're going to start in John 9. We're going to read verses 8 through 12 as our first section. Here's what the Word of God says. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So this... This group that we're going to look at here, there's two major responses. The first group of people that we're going to look at in their responses are the people. This first group of people identified here in verse 8 are the neighbors, those who likely lived near this man and knew him and knew his family and knew his condition of blindness, recognized that this is the individual who stood outside the temple for years and years begging for help. The second part of this group of people are those that would have recognized him as he was habitually at or around the temple begging for alms. A blind person in this day and age had little to no ability to support themselves, so they were reduced to depending upon the generosity of others to meet their needs. So we'll be introduced to the man's parents shortly. What we don't know, what isn't said, is how old is this man? What is the level of support that his family needed from him? Why was he begging? Were his parents not able to support him? We don't know any of that. All we know is that he's begging. He's been born born blind. And the people around him recognize, either as a neighbor or as someone who saw him in the temple, as a man who was previously born blind. So in these two groups, there's, first of all, letter A, there's some confusion about what's going on. Verses 8 and 9a, is this not the one who used to sit and beg 
Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. So as they looked at this individual, and I would imagine that the passers-by probably didn't spend a lot of time talking to him or examining his physical features, but he looked like that guy, and so there's some confusion. Is this a miracle, or is this a case of mistaken identity? Think about it. It would be much easier to believe that this is a case of mistaken identity than it would be to believe that this man who has been born blind, who has sinned here for years and years and years, is all of the sudden healed. This doesn't happen. People just don't get healed from their blindness. I did a little reading as I was preparing for this. In our medically advanced day and age, there is little to nothing that can be done to someone who is born with congenital blindness. It just can't be reversed. There is some, some groundbreaking research taking place where scientists have been able to reverse some types of blindness within mice, but there's no idea yet as to how this might help humans in reversing their blindness or how many people could be affected by that. Now, Barry had cataract surgery and his vision has been greatly improved But Barry can't go see any doctor who would have the ability to reverse congenital blindness. This is a significant thing that has taken place in this ancient culture where things like this just don't ever happen except where Jesus is. There's other instances within the gospel accounts where Jesus has healed blind people. We've seen all the time how Jesus has healed those who were deaf and those who couldn't walk and those who had some other deformity, those who were cursed with leprosy, those who were possessed by demons. We've seen Jesus do this. Make no mistake about it. It was understood by the people that nobody gets healed from blindness except by the work of God. So as the people are debating, as there's confusion as to what's taking place, it says in verse 9, the man kept saying, I am the one. We don't know how many times he repeated it. He could have said it a half a dozen times. Hey, it's me. I am that guy. I am the one who you knew to be born blind, the one that you've seen sit here week after week, year after year, begging for help. I am the guy that you are thinking I am. He finally gets their attention. He convinces them that he is actually this individual. And so this leads to letter B, curiosity. Verse 10. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? The question is very simple. How did something like this happen to you? This doesn't happen. This never happens. It's never been said that this has happened. And yet this has happened to you. This requires an explanation We need to inquire more about how this took place and what you did and what this individual did that enabled you to gain your sight. So he retells of the sequence of events and he says, this man called Jesus, very likely indicating that he had very little knowledge about this man, probably didn't be a part of any of his healings and knowing about them, may not have heard of any of his teachings. This man called Jesus made some clay, he anointed my eyes, he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam, I did that, and it resulted in the restoration of my sight. His explanation of how this happened as, as, is, as, is as impossible of a happening at all. Think about this. 
This guy just makes some mud. He puts it on my eyes. I go wash in the pool and I'm healed. Well, that doesn't sound very reasonable, does it? His explanation isn't any more plausible than the fact that he was actually healed. So the second question that they want to ask, not only how did this happen, but who did this? And as I already mentioned, this man called Jesus. This is all he knew. It's that guy that they call Jesus. He is the one that did this to me. Verse 12 is the logical response to this, and that is, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Now, it occurs to me that if Jesus was standing right next to this guy, he couldn't have pointed him out. Why? Because he's been blind. He's sitting on the ground, blind as the dark could be. He hears the voice. He feels his hands. He walks away. And at this point in the dialogue and in the narrative, Jesus disappears. So the man couldn't have identified him, even if he wanted to. All he knows is that this is the guy that they call to be Jesus. So this is the first group of people in the response to this miracle. The second group of people that we're going to look at are the Pharisees. The Pharisees dominate the remainder of this narrative. And we're going to look at this part in several different sections. Each of these sections, there is the interrogation. There's three separate interrogations that are going to take place in the remainder of this dialogue. It'll be easy for us to see the underlying unbelief, resentment, and hatred that they have towards Jesus, as is illuminated in all of the past experiences that Jesus has with the Pharisees, as recorded in the Scripture. It's also shocking that in each of these interrogations, there is absolutely no celebration of the fact that this man has been healed. There's no rejoicing. There's no praise given to God. There's nothing that indicates that something extraordinary has taken place in any of the interrogations that are going to take place in, as a result of this healing. So there's only the typical and expected rejection of Jesus and unbelief expressed towards Him in who He is and in the work that he has performed. So we're going to read together now verses 13 through 17 and look at this first interrogation. They, the people, brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes and immediately go, uh-oh, I can see where this is going, right? It was the Sabbath. So verse 15, then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said... He is a prophet. Now, it's important that John notes in verse 14 that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And what we need to remember is that the Pharisees didn't do anything on the Sabbath. So this official interrogation, this summoning of the individuals who are part of this miracle, are now in a formal legal environment where they are going to give legally binding testimony and that means this is likely the day after the healing took place. 
So verse 13, the people who were aware of this miracle wanted some kind of explanation from the religious authorities about how this thing could have taken place. It wasn't malicious. They expected some kind of a commentary from the religious leadership, some kind of an official statement about this unprecedented event. And so it was natural for them to seek out religious leadership to explain how this could have taken place. Now, you and I recognize that when there is a national or an international event, many people expect some kind of an official statement from the political leaders who are involved or affected, don't we? We're waiting for the president to speak. We're waiting for NATO to speak. We're waiting for somebody to give an official statement about this. Now, what you and I don't recognize is that in this culture... Almost everything within the Jewish life had religious overtones to it. So it was very natural for them to seek out the religious authorities, to ask their opinion, to expect them to give some kind of an official statement about this thing that has taken place. So letter A, we're going to see the interrogation of the man. Verse 15, then the Pharisees also were asking him again, just like the people did, how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Now John gives a very condensed explanation of what took place. You don't see any mentioning of the Sabbath here. You don't see any identification of the individual Jesus. It was much more likely that this is a lengthy questioning that is taking place because they are in a formal environment and in a formal setting. When you got called into the synagogue to meet with the Pharisees, it was a big deal. It's like getting called into the principal's office and you know something's up. So this is a very formal experience going on here and it's unlikely that it's as quick and condensed as it appears to be in this little narrative that John gives. His response is very simply this, and the question of how did this happen, and that is that Jesus healed me. How did this take place? He very, very simply says, Jesus healed me. Upon hearing the report of Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath, it brought about two separate responses from the group of Pharisees who are convening. The first response is this, Jesus is a sinner. Anybody who violates the Sabbath is considered to be a sinner. Verse 16, Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. He's a sinner because he violated the Sabbath. Now we studied this a little bit earlier in our study in the Gospel of John. And if you remember, the Pharisees took, the rabbis over hundreds of years took the simple instruction about the Sabbath day that you shall not work on the Sabbath day, and they created 39 separate categories for work. Not 39 examples of work, but 39 categories of where someone could be accused of violating their Sabbath regulations and restrictions. So, by making mud from the spit and the dust, he violated the rule against kneading, like kneading bread. That was one of the categories of work was cooking, I guess. And so it was a violation of the Sabbath if you earned your income by kneading bread. And so by Jesus making mud out of spit and dirt was the equivalent of kneading. Therefore, he violated the Sabbath. Sounds like a fun environment to live in, right? 
He also violated the restriction against giving medical treatment on the Sabbath unless it was a life or death circumstance. Think about that. Your kid's playing out in the back and he falls down and he cuts himself and he's all banged up and you say, sorry Joshua, you got to wait till tomorrow because it's the Sabbath. Just rub some dirt on it and you'll be okay. Can you imagine such a thing? The third violation was that he anointed the man's eyes on the Sabbath, which is a separate violation from providing medical treatment. So Jesus was triple doomed in the mind of the Pharisees because he violated the Sabbath rules that they had created in the needing, in the application of medical treatment, and in the anointing of this man's eyes. That was the first response, is that Jesus is a sinner. The second response is that Jesus is from God. Now, if you also remember way back in our study of John, there were some within the ranks of the Pharisees who were convinced that there's more to the eye than what we can see about this man, Jesus. For example, Nicodemus, who was called the leader of the Jews, who later helps bury him, was fascinated by the teaching of Jesus. And it's hinted that he was likely a secret follower through much of Jesus' ministry before he came out and publicly supported Jesus as the Christ. So this other response here is that Jesus is from God. We see this in the second part of verse 16. Others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. So remember that statement that is said right there within the ranks of the Pharisees because it will come back a little bit later in our dialogue. So no one had ever seen anyone do the things that Jesus did. Never. Most especially heal a man born blind. So if he were a sinner, Jesus would not be able to do these things because remember the culture understood only God can heal the blind. So the logical conclusion is this. Only the power of God can heal a man born blind. If Jesus were to perform this miracle, it must then be the power of God at work in him and through him. And if it is the work of God in him and through him, then surely God would not use a sinner as the agent of this extraordinary example of God's power and this choice of healing this man. So there's two sides to this debate at this moment. There's division within the ranks of the Pharisees, and this division requires that whatever Jesus did on the Sabbath needs to be weighed further and discussed in greater detail. But they want to know this question. How, not, not only how did this happen, but what do you say about this man? Verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now this man had no particular expertise in Jewish law. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a lawyer. He wasn't a Levite. He was an uneducated, illiterate beggar who had spent his entire life hanging out around the temple hoping somebody would help him out. So he's being asked the question. He has to draw a definitive line in the sand. Is Jesus a sinner or is he from God? And the man very boldly says, he is a prophet. 
Now, if you remember the crippled man back in chapter 5, who wavered on who he thought Jesus was, and would later tattle on Jesus, if you will, about what Jesus did, and instructed him to pick up his mat and to take it home on the Sabbath, this man very boldly, very clearly, identifies that he believes that Jesus is from God. Although the title of prophet falls fall short of who Jesus really is, this man at least has a perspective of Jesus that he is from God and not a sinner. And although his understanding is very incomplete at this point in his life and experience, this is temporary because it's going to change as we'll look at next Sunday. So we see the first interrogation here. We see the interrogation of the man. The second interrogation we're going to look at now is the interrogation of the parents. We haven't looked at verse 24 yet. That's at the very beginning of the next interrogation. But what it says is, they will call the man again, meaning he's probably not in this environment. So they've had an interrogation of the man. We don't know how much time has passed. It could be a couple of hours. But now they have summoned the parents to come and to give an account and to testify about this thing that has taken place in the life of their son. So we're looking now at verses 18 through 23 in the second interrogation. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. So they have basically said, we don't believe you, we think you're lying, and now they want to get some corroborating testimony from his parents. Verse 19. They, they questioned them, the parents, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how now does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that, he, that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So the parents don't believe the testimony of the man. They've concluded that he wasn't healed, that he wasn't really blind. He was simply a liar, and they're going to get down to the bottom of this by interrogating the parents. They have three questions that they want to know. The first one is, is this your son? They ask these questions in rapid-fire sequence, not even giving the parents a chance to answer them. Is this your son? Now, while the neighbors and the people who would have seen this guy in the temple could be mistaken about his actual identity, there was no way the parents could not give an absolute confirmation that, yes, this is, in fact, my son. The second question is, was he born blind? Now, they say this with a little bit of a twist to it. There's an accusatory tone here. Is this your son who you say was born blind? As if they're still not convinced that even the testimony of the parents would be truthful So they ask this in such a way to indicate that they believe the parents are going to lie about the son's condition. The third question they ask is, how does he see? They ask all of these questions. This is in a formal environment of a legal setting with the Pharisees. They don't give the parents a chance to answer the questions one by one, but they finally get a chance to speak in verses 20 and 21. They say, yes, he is our son. Yes, he was born blind, but as to how he was healed and who did it, ask him. 
He is of legal age. He will speak for himself. So they affirm that this is their son. They affirm that he was born blind. But they decline to answer the third question. This is astute if you're not paying attention. Very, very shrewd. There's a lot at stake here in how they answer this question. They're fearful about what will happen. They sense what's going on in the line of attack that they're hearing from the Pharisees. And they're fearful about what's going to happen if they say the wrong thing. So they say, he is of age. And what that means is this. He is old enough to give legally binding testimony about himself. We aren't required to give testimony about this. He can speak on his own accord. And then John adds the reason why they were fearful. They were fearful that the Pharisees could put them out of the synagogue. This is the power that the Pharisees held over the Jewish people. Do something we don't like, and we're going to kick you out. Say something we don't like, and we're going to kick you out. Challenge our authority, and we're going to kick you out. Confirm that Jesus is the Messiah, we're going to kick you out. And so this is the scenario that these parents are faced with and the answer that they're being asked to give. And so they just simply say, ask him. He's of legal age. We're not required to give a testimony. To be put out of the local synagogue was a dreaded punishment. It meant that you would be cut off from Jewish religious and social life. You could no longer visit the temple excuse me, the synagogue, it was possible that you couldn't go to a neighboring synagogue. It was also possible that you couldn't even go to the temple. You were going to be excluded from religious way of life as a Jew, no longer able to worship in the way you had your entire life. Additionally, you would be cut off from, from, from Israeli social life. What that means is you were excommunicated You could no longer associate with anybody outside of your family. All your friends, all your acquaintances, if you owned a business, all of your customers, you were cut off from religious and social life. In this culture, this is likely the worst thing that you could do to any Jewish person. And you couldn't just pack up your stuff in the minivan and drive a little bit down the road and set up shop and start over. It just didn't work that way. This was a brutal punishment, and this is what the parents are fearful of. So this interrogation ends with the parents' confirmation of their son's identity, his being born blind, And the Pharisees are left with no legitimate excuse to deny that a miracle had occurred. But they're convinced that something in the previous testimony is missing. Perhaps it's been fabricated. Or maybe something has been left out. And they must discover what it is. So this leads to the third interrogation, which is in fact the second interrogation of the man who had been healed. This is the longest of the three exchanges, and it's filled with significant intimidation tactic as well as unexpected strength in the face of this intimidation. So let's read together verses 24 through 34 as we look at this final interrogation. So a second time they called the man who had been, born, who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. 
He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Those are fighting words right there, friend. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. The man continues to speak. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out. The Pharisees have undoubtedly discussed this matter between each of the separate interrogations, although their conversation is not recorded for us. But they have come to a unanimous conclusion where there was initially some confusion and some division within the ranks They've pulled it together very, very tight, and they've simply concluded this. Jesus is a sinner. He's a sinner because they believe that he has violated three rules, three regulations within their Sabbath tradition. And so now they're going to investigate further, and they're going to put the screws to this man in a very significant way. They make a couple of accusations. The first accusation is this. Stop lying. You're lying. You know you're lying. We know you're lying. Stop it. So they say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So this phrase, give glory to God, is not a request to praise God. It's not a request to honor God. It is an expression used by Joshua when Achan sinned and kept some of the spoils of war for himself instead of totally annihilating everything as God had commanded. And so we read in Joshua 7.19, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So this call to give glory to God is the imposition of stop lying, tell the truth. They are convinced this man is lying because they are even more convinced that Jesus is a sinner and this man is part and parcel, two peas in a pod, with Jesus, this sinful man. Jesus is a Sabbath breaker and you are complicit in this breaking of the Sabbath And that makes you guilty as well. So his response to this first accusation is very simply, I can see. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But this I do know, I was blind and now I see. This man is very, very smart for an uneducated, illiterate beggar who's been blind from birth in what he says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't address their assumption or accusation that Jesus is a sinner. They are the religious leaders. I'm just an uneducated beggar. 
All I can say is this. I was blind and now I see. (laughs) You know, you and I sitting here today can say the exact same thing spiritually speaking. Isn't that right? We were blind to God's love. We were blind to the message of the cross. We were blind to the person of Jesus Christ, to the great God that exists. And yet now we can say, I see. I was blind, but now I see. Isn't that a great thing to be able to say? That even though I was blind, an enemy of God, indifferent to God, I now know who He is because God has made me see just like Jesus made this man see. Second accusation that they make against this man is this. What really happened? So they said to him in verse 26, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So it appears that they might be conceding that he was in fact blind and now inexplicably he can see But there must be some kind of a trick. There must be something else that had happened. You've got to be withholding something from us. Tell us what He did so that you can now see. Because Jesus is a sinner, we know that He can't do the work of God, so there has to be an alternate explanation. Isn't that terrible? That the religious leadership can't think for a moment that the great God that they allegedly serve can do something that is beyond their ability to understand because they have dug their heels in the sand, convinced that Jesus is a sinner because He broke their understanding of the Sabbath. His response to the second accusation is this. I've already told you. There's nothing more to say. If I were to repeat this, I would just say the same thing and you're not going to believe me anyway. Why should I bother in telling you something that you've already dismissed and regarded as being untruthful? But he's not content with just that. He throws the screws back, if you will. You you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? He's seeing through their biased position on who Jesus is, and he's beginning to see their unwillingness to believe that Jesus had the capacity to heal him. So why say the same thing? Is it because perhaps you want to be a follower of Jesus? (laughs) With a boldness the Pharisees could have never anticipated, what they certainly weren't expecting, this man suggests that maybe they want to hear the story again so they can understand more about the power and the majesty and the mystery of Christ. And upon hearing this, the gloves come off. There's no longer the pretense of an even-handed investigation or trial. There's simply an attempt to denounce the person and the work of Christ and all who profess Him as being from God. This brings us to the third accusation they make. You are His disciple. Verse 28, They reviled Him and said, You are His disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. That word revile means to abuse. Literally, it means to abuse. And the application of that is to criticize angrily. They claim their allegiance to Moses and they contrast that with his allegiance to this sinful renegade who was clearly inferior to the great Moses. 
So it, they contrast in their minds the difference that exists between the two. Now, they've already had these debates about Jesus and Moses and who's superior and all that stuff. It'd be a rehash of what we looked at over several weeks. So verse 29 is how they contrast it. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man that came and say his name, we do not know where he is from. Now, we know that God spoke to Moses in supernatural fashion on the Mount of Sinai and giving him the Ten Commandments and repeatedly showing up to explain to him all the nuances of the ritual and the ceremonial law and all the things that people had to do and couldn't do, how the tabernacle was to be built, how it was to be decorated, how the priest would be adorned, and on and on and on. God spoke to Moses. And we don't even know where this guy comes from. Well, that's not true, right? We've already had this discussion as recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus has claimed to be from above. He's claimed to be from God. They said, no, you're Joseph and Mary's boy. You come from that despised village on the wrong side of the tracks called Nazareth. They know who He is and they know where He is from, but their anger at this man and their hatred for Jesus is so intense that they say, we don't even know where He's from, but hey, God spoke to Moses. So clearly they are stating that Moses is superior to this individual that you have pledged allegiance to. There's no comparison. His response... Verse 30, he opened my eyes. The man answered and said, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. Their inability, their unwillingness, their indifference to who Jesus is and where he has come from is exposed in this fabrication. And the man says that was all secondary because... I don't know where he's from, but he opened my eyes. I was born blind, and this man has done something that has never been done before, and he reverses the contrast between the superiority of Moses and Jesus, because not even Moses had the ability to heal someone who was born blind. It's unlikely that this man understood all the points implied in the contrast between Moses and Jesus. After all, he was just a beggar, untrained, illiterate, uneducated. And while they can't decide where Jesus is from, the man stands firm in this one thing. I was blind and he has opened my eyes. Jesus was able to do what only God's power can do. Now this is amazing here, these next three verses. This uneducated man who has spent a lot of time around the temple but doesn't have any formal training, is going to explain to them why he is right and they are wrong. Verses 30 through 31. This is the blind man speaking. 31 to 33, excuse me. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. The Jews would have said, that's exactly right. God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. Only those who do His will. We're with you right there. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Yeah, you're right. We've never heard of that. Any. That's incredible. It can't possibly be true. There has to be some kind of a trick. There has to be some kind of a shenanigan going on here. Verse 33, the conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The man repeats what he heard in the first interrogation, 
that for this man to do this, he has to be from God because only God can heal the blind. This man possessed something that all the Pharisees and their education did not possess, and that was this, common sense. Doesn't it stand to reason that God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners? And God isn't going to work His power through the hands of a sinful man. So therefore, if God is working through this man, and these incredible things are happening, doesn't it make sense that He is from God? Only God can hear, can heal the blind. The result of this final interrogation is the man was excommunicated from the synagogue. Exactly what his parents feared. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. They were incapable of refuting his logic. They had nothing to say other than, get out. We don't like what you said. We disagree with what you said. You claim to be a disciple of Jesus. You're clearly aligning yourself with a sinful man. You are cut off from the life of a Jew. Now, this statement that you were born entirely in sins is not a statement on the universality of sin or that we are born with a sinful nature. It is a restatement of what Jesus denounced when His disciples asked, why was this man born blind? You see, these guys are convinced that this man was born with sin. That's why he was blind. Whether it be from his sin in the womb or the influence from the Greek culture of a previous soul that was sinful. We don't know the origin of why they would believe this. But they've concluded that this man was born entirely of sin. You don't have the right, you don't have the ability to speak to us that way. Who are you to teach us? We are the experts of the law. And so they basically just say, we're done This is over, and we're going to kick you out. Now, what's very ironic is this. In this accusation that they've made that you were born entirely in sin, they are acknowledging the fact that he was born blind. Otherwise, they would not have said it that way. If he was born blind, and he is now looking at them with clear vision, it means that he was also healed which confirms that only God can heal the blind and that Jesus is God's workman sent by Him to do what only God can do as the Father has revealed to Him and shown Him. This irony is considerable, but they denounce the miracle worker and they denounce the result and they oppose the harshest penalty on this man who has just had his life changed forever by the grace of God to the glory of God. It's a sad state of affairs within the Jewish way of life. Then and now, they're insistent that Jesus is not the Messiah. There's not a thing you could say. There's not a historical account of the resurrection you could show them that is ever going to change their unbelief, just like we've read in these accounts. But I want to focus on the blind man. 
thinking about this man through no fault of his own, born blind, convinced by his culture that either he or his parents did something wrong. The parents living under the weight of that guilt and that shame that they've done something for this son of ours to be born blind, who sits year after year outside the temple at the mercy of other people, encounters this man in a matter of seconds, who makes the mud out of the dirt, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash. His life is changed forever. Well, you know, that's exactly what God has done for you and I. In our spiritual blindness, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and some mystery to us, God has anointed our eyes and given us the ability to see who He really is and given us the ability to know this great God who has existed from eternity past, who has intervened in our history by sending Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and through our faith in that grace, can live with Him for an eternity in the future. Though we were blind, now we see, and you had zero contribution to this incredible thing that has happened, just like that man. We were born blind, spiritual beggars in need of intervention, and God sent His Son. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for this great thing that You've done for us. Words are just incapable of explaining, of articulating. Our minds are incapable of understanding, yet we know that it's true. Father, thank You for being a great and loving and gracious God who removed the blindness from our spiritual eyes and gave us the ability to see You for who You really are. So together, as Your people, we stand to sing how great Thou art. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship Him.